Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish off Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities. Now before jumping into it, if you haven't checked out the first episode, go do that. If you have checked out the first episode, remember to like, share, subscribe. It'll help me out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no. No pressure. Links for these things in the description if you'd like. Uh, if you want to follow me any, anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at Theory. And, and I don't know what is wrong with me. At theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. Again, links for these things in the description or titles. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find the it on YouTube. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find just the audio on pretty much any podcast platform. If you want to leave five stars there, that would help me out a lot. But do what you like. Maybe you hate what I do. You can leave one star. That's totally fine. But here we're going to pick up on the second half, starting with chapter five titled Old Languages, New Models. Now, I didn't really make this clear in the last episode, but there's a there's a lot here. I, I did mention that. But in presenting this text, it's one of the difficulties is choosing exactly which examples to give and where to focus your attention. Because Anderson talks about so many different nations, so many different people, so many different thinkers about the nation, including like Hanan, uh, who comes up in... Edward Said's Orientalism, and I also didn't really lay out why I'm covering this text, because I am interested in post-colonial theory now and want to do a few texts on it. I'm going to keep on this train after this. But Anderson's Imagined Communities is an integral text in this domain, in that much of post-colonialism is thinking about people within nations, and how these nations experienced colonialism, and how they the, they continually experience colonialism even after it, it has ended. And in order to understand that, it's super important to understand this very idea of the nation itself. So many post-colonial texts, the, theoretical ones, will draw upon Benedict Anderson in thinking about uh, the nation. But yeah, to get the full effect, you really need to read this text because he talks about so many different figures, nations, differing histories to really get the full effect. And it's a short read, like it's only about 200 and some pages, smaller pages, lots of big footnotes, so it makes the pages read faster. Uh, definitely read the footnotes, but some of them are just giving background information about certain people that isn't always so relevant. In any case, yeah, I'm rambling. So chapter five, old languages, new models. So he begins this by repeating the way that colonization troubled Europe's belief in its own superiority, political superiority, religious superiority, economic superiority, because Europeans were traveling all across the world and they were finding places that were resplendent. They were finding places that were rich, that were religiously rich, that had monuments that completely eclipsed anything Europe had had, and just histories that Europe couldn't even dream of, uh, of matching, especially, you know, in India, with like the, the Vedic tradition being sold, uh, and just the culture there just being so unbelievably refined that Europe just couldn't do anything about it, hence their desire, at least one motivating factor, their desire to control those people, to conquer them, largely out of a show of insecurity. Now, around the same time when Europe was 
conducting all of these colonial expeditions, languages became more democratized and up for study. You know, people could actually, we're beginning to actually study languages. And as we discussed in Edward Said's Orientalism, philology began to emerge. And it was the study of language and the science of language where Europe, European people, began to interrogate and to dissect other languages to find traces of their being less refined than European languages. Like, of course, just list off European languages. So this was done a lot against Semitic languages like Hebrew and Arabic as being less, um, kind of less uh, advanced than European languages. So these colonial expeditions began to place certain languages under scrutiny and also allowed major languages in major places in Europe to be transmitted all across the globe. So the French were conducting colonial expeditions in the Americas and in uh, the Middle East, among other places, and, and then they would in Vietnam and, and other southern, uh, southern states in, in Asia. And what happened was that the languages that were being transmitted were not regional languages to France. They were the majority languages of the metropole, of the major cities that were organizing these colonial expeditions. So then people all over the world, through colonization, were forced to adopt these languages. And so they began to spread really everywhere. And this is this is very much still experienced today. You can go to so many places on earth and people just know English. And it's a, it's a very scary thing, the number of people that know English. But this is part of, this is one example of neocolonization where people are just expected to know English, even though people in their country don't regularly speak English to one another. There's just this expectation that you are meant to know English. And English people hate, in the Americas at least, hate putting in any effort to learn another language. It's almost like a sign of, of, of being like, I don't even know what, of, of a lower class. But that's not, I don't know. It's like th there's this phobia of other languages, this fear of even wanting to understand another language. Yet people all over the world are expected to learn their own language probably even other ones, but always in, in so many cases to know English as well. Now, of course, it would follow that people within, let's say, France, Great Britain, would start to adopt the majority language as well. That is the language coming from the city center, the country centers, the country capitals. And so there was just a general gravitation towards these majority languages that could help shape nations. So people could be bound together by their language. Now, not everyone could read, of course, but more people could. And we saw the emergence here of nobilities, of landed gentries, professionals, functionaries, and men of the market. So there were differing, there were other factors here that contributed to an emerging uh, intelligentsia among the population, an emerging and emerging possibilities for people to enter into positions that were previously denied to them because they were reserved for uh, family of dynasties or of people who had power. 
So through this democratization, more people could occupy these roles and more states began to develop and put into place more administrative functions, more bureaucratic functions. And this necessitated more communication within states and between states. So people had to be able to adopt the same language in order to communicate. So in colonial states, let's say like in the Americas, one of the benefits that was afforded to them in being able to form their own separate nation was the fact that everyone there spoke that main language, like in the case of speaking English, you know, because they were the all came from the same part of Britain, most likely came from the England, I would assume, for the most part, or, or not, you know, they came from other places, but they probably all spoke the same language in order to be able to actually communicate with one another. They didn't have to deal with regional dialects. There wasn't really time for them to form through years of separation from the rest of the world or from the rest of their country. And that puts us here into chapter six, official nationalism and imperialism. So by official nationalism, what Anderson is referring to is how dynasties in their dying breaths tried to protect themselves. And they did this by mandating languages as, as official languages by mandating um, certain dynastic dynastic values as being official values and trying to really pin down and associate themselves with a country. And this also contributed to, to nationalism. And one example is the way that R Russia did this through what uh, he calls, and I guess was called Rus Russification, as an effort to really maintain the dynasties there to make sure that they wouldn't be overthrown, to make people really committed to them by associating that land explicitly with these dynasties, leaving little room for opposition, and to impose a single identity over swaths of people and cultures, even though they were vastly different, to make them all the same. And so in the early 1800s, in some measure, these official nationalisms were the last-ditch effort by dynasties to oppose the emerging nationalisms like the ones in the Americas that were largely administrative. They were Republican. They were going to be run by the people. People would elect their officials and so on. And obviously that's very scary for monarchies or dynasties that just ruled by the fact that they were born into a certain family. Now these official nationalisms and the dynasties that put them into place, they weren't just efforts to try to control a specific, their own specific swath of land, their own specific plot of land, there were imperial efforts here as well. That is, they tried to, or one distinct quality of imperialism is that it imposes a language without a nationality on people because nationality was still in its infancy. So if a dynasty feels itself to be dying, it might try to sweep up any nearby nations it can to, to subsume them into its culture, into its supposed nation. And that is just one way to better control them and to communicate to people that it is the one true nation. Even though nationalism, as Anderson is writing about it here, hadn't really fully emerged yet. It was a, a nationalism avant la lettre came before that it, there was a word for it. It was just the first instances of it that would eventually help even give rise to these new nationalisms. 
Now, these nationalisms through in colonization, what would often happen is people would be forced to adopt a religion. The religion was often imposed on people. Uh, a language would be imposed on them, certain values. But what was maybe less common was to say that people were going to be part of France, where, let's say, indigenous people in Canada, what is now known as Canada, were not going to become citizens of France because the French wouldn't have wanted that. They were going to want these people only to be uh, to communicate to them in order to better exploit them, to take their knowledge, to take their land, to take their resources in order to further the project of French nationalism and French imperialism and to just control more and more land. And that puts us here into chapter seven, titled The Last Wave. Now, after World War I, nationalism and nation states really began to crystallize in the way that he's talking about imagined communities here. And this happened through the mass media, through the educational system, through administrative regulations, and so forth. All of these played a part in communicating the idea of a nation and national values. Other developments like improved communication and transport also played a part. And there was a growing administrative body to manage colonized lands and new approaches to education that solidified these nationalisms. Now, one thing that he mentions here that he doesn't really fully elaborate on is that one of the ways that these new nationalisms emerged was that there was a lowering in the average age of people who were entering into the intelligentsia at the time. This is partly due to the fact that it was easier for people to occupy positions that were previously denied to them, like academic positions, political positions, economic positions, and so on. And so younger people were able to enter into these new positions, which were starting to mess up any attachment to tradition in favor of new ideas about how people could be organized and to bring people together in new ways, uh, according to various other national impulses. So children who were growing up in the earliest, in the early forms of nationalism, like the official nationalisms that were just trying to impose a nationalism on the people, could then put them into motion in a more organic way, where they could develop seemingly of their own accord. And this is kind of what it looked like for nations to form. They just seemed to come into existence. There wasn't like some world ruler that, that said, now all the earth is going, to, uh, is going to be organized in accordance with nations. Nations are going to uh, control every part of the earth. That, that never happened. It seemed to happen much more organically. And this is just one reason for that. Now, the idea that schools were served as uh, an important part in establishing nations in, and transmitting the values of the nations to people wasn't localizable to just specific um, colonial nations like Europe, like countries in Europe. But actually, this was a tactic used for colonized people as well. And one of the examples that he gives is the way that the, uh, the French erected schools within Vietnam to better communicate French culture to these people to try to, you know, teach them French to try to make it uh, so that they could become part of, so that they could adopt these values. And the same was done, of course, with 
in the in Canada and the United States with residential schools, efforts to try to assimilate these people uh, in order to strip them of their culture, to strip them of their um, any spirituality they might have in favor of European ones. Now, in all this, it, it's important to note that for Anderson, a language is not synonymous with the nation. So people could have different languages, but have the same nationalistic uh, belief or the same belief in their nation. So what he says about this is that if radical Mozambique speaks Portuguese, the significance of this is that Portuguese is the medium through which Mozambique is imagined. So the language is just the medium through which this other thing, the nation, is imagined and comes into existence and is maintained. And that puts us here into chapter 8, titled Patriotism and Racism. So why are people willing to die for an imagined community, an imagined attachment of people uh, in accordance with imagined geographic barriers? Well, despite the progressive efforts to think of the nation as a, as, as a violent enterprise that tries to separate people, tries to impose itself on others, creates violence and chaos, it is also an entity that produces love, and it fosters love among the people. And this is, Freud said something similar when it comes to understanding fascism, where many people thought that fascism was um, was made possible because it brought people together on the basis of hatred, where people would hate somebody else, hate another people, hate another culture. Where Freud says that maybe... But it's important to note how people love in these instances, and they love their nation. They love their ruler. They identify with their ruler. They want to be their ruler. And so it's important to leave room for this consideration of love, especially here when thinking about the nation, because love is a force that can convince people to die for that thing that they love. Because, you know, one one way to think about love is the the liking something more than you like yourself and that leaves room for you wanting to give yourself up for that thing so the nation for anderson is something that can instill love or can inspire love and often profoundly self-sacrificing love it can do this by convincing people that it is natural and doesn't have an agenda and what he means by this that that wasn't his words i think his words were like it is disinterested. The idea here is that the nation's, the nation's goals become synonymous with its natural proclivities, where the nation is just assumed to be acting uh, naturally and not, by, not to have any kind of agenda, not to be ideologically motivated. It is just working for the people and itself's benefit, and that's just the way it works. So it comes to then assume the status of neutrality that people really attach to as being a sign of its objectivity so that it can be more easily associated with, it can be more easily attached to. And there are other ways it does this too. The nation um, conveys the idea that it is synonymous with the very earth that it is, that it is occupying where the borders that set it up are not imagined, they are very much real. And the earth has decided that this nation should be here. And, and the earth is imbued with sort of 
with many mystical traits that come to stand in for the nation. And it comes to insert itself as an extension of your family, where even the conditional possibility of family is made possible. Conditional possibility is made possible. It is made possible by the nation itself. So just as you might feel for your parents, if you have a very strong attachment to them, you might feel for the nation because it is an extension of those, those relationships. In fact, it is the condition for the possibility of those relationships. And he tells us here that the nation itself is, is as both a historical fatality and as a community imagined through language. So on the one hand, the nation tries to erase history, tries to erase the fact that there haven't always been nations. But at the same time, it always harkens back to a certain history. But it, it is very selective in which history it is going to harken back to. It's going to harken back to those, or to harken to, harken back, harken to. Anyways, it's going to draw upon those histories that are beneficial to itself as a natural entity in the world. So it's going to point to conquests, maybe um, use war as a way to justify its existence as being like the best nation on earth, which is certainly something the United States does. It's obsession with previous wars as a way to communicate its superiority to other nations. Now here he offers a brief meditation on the place of racism in this paradigm, where he says that the role of racism has not been to target nations, but people. So people are going to be clumped together in accordance with their race, not with their nation. And this is the basis of racism. Now, over time, of course, certain people become associated with certain nations, and those nations will just naturally be associated with those people and will be uh, discriminated against. Not to mention, of course, that different nations with similarly raced people are going to be treated in certain ways different from other nations with uh, similarly raced people. So, People in China are going to be treated, uh, might be treated discriminatorily differently than somebody in I don't know, Taiwan, for example, or another country in that region, or somebody in Pakistan is going to be treated differently from somebody in uh, India, perhaps. And there are racial differences there, of course. But the point is that for Anderson, that race is something that will, in the cultural imaginary, will transcend the nation. And it is something that is treated as a separate entity where race and nation aren't really associated together. But at the same time, the construction of race in during these colonial regimes was largely responsible to bring European nations together on the basis of their, uh, their being white. Or I should qualify some of them being white course, people in Ireland, people in Greece, not being associated with whiteness. And that's a very complicated discussion, but in any case, it's what he gives us. And that puts us here into chapter nine, the angel of history. Now, the angel of history idea comes from Benjamin. And the image is that there's an angel, and the angel is looking back on history. And history is um, like, everything's going wrong in this image. 
Angel is seeing all this debris forming on top of more debris, and it's just total chaos. It's horrible. The angel maybe wants to intervene. But there's this wind pushing the angel into the future, into the present and, and future. So it can only look back on history as this wind of progress is pushing it to the future. And take, a, you know, whatever that image means. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated one. There's so many parts to it. The idea is that this, this history is not a nice one, and there's nothing that can be done about it as time goes forward. Of course, there are different interpretations. Leave them in the comments if you are very interested, you know, you want yours to be um, featured. But in any case, just as a kind of backdrop to this chapter. So in the 20th century, there were many revolutions that occurred, uh, many of which were incredibly violent, contributing to this idea that history the angel of history is looking back upon this debris-filled, violent past. So many of these revolutions were inspired by Marxist thought, many were not, uh, but the ones that were inspired by Marxist thought also tacitly embraced, or not so tacitly, but they also embraced the idea of the nation and of nationality, believing that Marxism can really only occur in that imagined geographic space. And it's interesting that these revolutionary ideas would embrace this idea of the nation because the nation is an incredibly conservative, reductive, limited, unchanging entity. And yet it manages to seep into the minds of even the most radical progressives and revolutionaries as a way to ground the revolutionary project. And this really conveys or for me, um, really confirms what Deleuze and Guattari say, I believe in Anti-Oedipus, where they say that in the case of capitalism, it de-territorializes with one hand what it re-territorializes with the other. So in the case of capitalist exploitation, it tries to uproot everything. It'll uproot cultures, people, tradition, religion, just for this ephemeral thing called capital, for money. But it knows that it cannot just rely upon pure uprooting, pure deterritorialization to realize its goals. It needs some structural edifice, some, some base or some bases that can ground the entire system and keep people tethered to a land so that they can be further exploited later on. So it maintains the idea of the nation, even though all it tries to do is uh, break boundaries, break national boundaries, tear down religion, and so on. It's going to allow the nation to still exist. It's going to allow religion to still exist because they are very important to convince people that everything is all good, that there's a nation will protect them in the face of capitalist exploitation, that religion will give them salvation at the end of a life of endless exploitation and misery. So uh, the same can be applied with Marxist tendencies that sought to, um, sought to realize an international proletarian movement, but were still, still obstinate. They were still stubborn in their belief that there must be a, um, a national trend here. And as a little anecdote, I follow a number of Marxist pages, and so many of them are just gung-ho for Russian imperialism, not just because they believe that Russia's values are good and, and any kind of, and this is, these are Marxist groups, um, 
that the Marxist values are good, but really a belief in the Russian spirit in its current occupation and invasion of Ukraine that it sells as a special military operation or however however it sells this through its its propaganda. And this is just one example of the ways in which this nationalism seeps into the minds of the most, at least they believe themselves to be radical thinkers or revolutionaries, and it tethers any revolutionary struggle to a very conservative underbelly that limits and prohibits the actual formation of a progressive movement, at least in my mind. And that puts us here into chapter 10, titled Census, Map, and Museum. So official nationalism in colonized regions can be traced to the three institutions of power. And they, and they really came into fruition during colonization. And these are the census, the map, and the museum as these three institutions of power. Now, these three institutions helped shape the way in which the colonial state imagined its dominion the nature of the human beings it ruled, and the geography of its domain, and the legitimacy of its ancestry. And the map, the census, and the museum all worked together, but in the, they all participated in the same, in different parts of the same project. And the same project here was the effort, the emerging effort, to make everything understandable, to make everything coded, to map everything, to put everything under quantifiable control in order to know what how populations moved, how many people there were, how many of which kinds of people were they, where were these people living, what were they eating, how, you know, what were they scared of, and so on. So let's start with the census. The census began to assume, you know, for all the, what I just mentioned, you know, efforts to control populations, understand them, how many people were there, and so on. Over time, the census began to assume a more racial character. It was a way to separate people on the basis of race by finding out how people identified themselves, how people would then react or interact with people of different races, and so on. So the idea of the census was that everybody is in it, and that everyone has one and only one extremely clear place within it, it being the nation. So to be part of the census was almost a way of feeling a sort of belonging, being a part of that nation, believing yourself to be one among others. But of course, it was just a way to better control people, to place them under microscope, and to um, leave little opportunity for their possible change, for their movement, for their pursuing a life that they actually want. Now, the control that is embodied in the census would be extended to mapping as well, where mapping serves the purpose of demarcating territories, of delineating where territory begins and where it ends, and by virtue of that, limiting where people can move to, limiting what people can, who people can talk to, what people are, how people are supposed to act in certain places. And the interesting thing about maps is that they hold no significance. It com maps completely erase the way people perceive their own land, and it replaces the way that people perceive their own land with an apparently objective representation of that land. So, for example, between 1900 and 1915, the Thai language went through some minor changes. 
as a result of emerging mapping and the practice of mapping there, where traditional words like krung or muang, which I hope I pronounced properly, uh, they began to disappear because they imagined dominion in terms of sacred capitals and visible discontinuous population centers. So in their place came the word, for example, prathet, which stood in for country, which means country in English, which imagined the nation in terms or people and, and the nation in terms of the invisible terms of bounded territorial space. So what maps did was they removed the significance of sacred sites, of tradition, of people's movement, uh, where people just where people lived. The significance of these things in people's perception of their own territory or the territory that they occupied, it replaced that with a detached, secular, just construction of territory through mountains and through uh, through rivers and lakes and oceans that made absolutely no sense to anybody actually living there. They just served the legislative function of knowing which territory belonged to whom and how to then better command that territory. And I have one anecdote here. I have a friend, a student who does work in El Salvador, um, among other nations in proximity to there. And she was sharing one story where she had, in an effort to help people there um, better organize their production of crops and organize their territory, had distributed satellite images of that territory to the people, to which they had no idea what they were looking at. And rightfully so. I mean, satellite images are totally alienating. Um, I could probably see satellite images of my apartment building and have no clue what the hell I'm looking at or or the city I'm living in. I mean, it's just... Nobody sees the world that way, but it is for all intents and purposes, an objective representation of that territory. Once you're actually told what it is, you could probably make sense of it, but it serves no actual function for people other than being a representation, a, an artificially or a, a detached objective representation of that territory. And what is interesting though, is that maps don't just represent territory. By assuming an objective status that is not attached to religion, tradition, to culture, and of course it is attached to religion, tradition, and culture, just not that territory's religion, uh, tradition, and culture, or cultures. By assuming a status of objectivity, it comes to then portend or to set the stage for new spatial arrangements where suddenly people are going to adapt to it just because of the power that scientific objectivity was beginning to gain at that time, people were given little opportunity opportunity, to actually question it and to challenge it. And so instead they would adapt to it. So the map actually created the conditions for a world constructed in accordance with maps that maps could then help understand better. So maps created the conditions for a world to be organized in a much more coherent way from a largely European standpoint, a more coherent way that maps could then be used to more easily map and control. So maps would get more elaborate in their representation of various like mountain ranges, for example, or other territorial or regional discrepancies and 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 differences and 
anomalies, and so on. So then it became a world that could only be understood in accordance with mapping, through mapping, which is just one way that these systems create the conditions for their own continuation, even though they just constructed this. Now, in addition to maps, the census, there are also museums. And this is he's also concerned here with archaeology, which also began to emerge in Southeast Asia as a way to collect and analyze artifacts. And this is a very violent act. Archaeology is one that is often done to control people, which it might seem strange. You know, you're just digging up artifacts. How could that be? What's wrong with that? Well, the idea here is that archaeological push coincided with the first political struggle over the state's educational policies. So the reason for this is that schooling risked educating educating indigenous people, and so the colonizers needed a way to subordinate the culture. By taking the culture, uprooting it, and putting it in museums, suddenly it became detached from the place it originated in and became a spectacle for the colonizers. And that was just one way to control them, to control these people and to control the culture. Also, the excavation of artifacts and monuments was intended to prove that they were not made by the current inhabitants because of their sophistication. And we think might think here of like, the ways that people say that the pyramids were made by aliens and people suggesting that that's a racist thing to say because it tacitly suggests that Egyptians were not capable of building the pyramids. They must have had help from um, another, uh, from aliens or other narratives are like, there's this, there was some secret civilization that no one has found yet that taught these people how to do these things. It was impossible for Egyptians to just know how to do this they had to have help. Collecting artifacts as well, and monuments, allowed the new states to assume a veneer of protectionism of tradition, where colonial states could say, oh, we're, we're, you know, we aren't stealing your stuff. We're, we're going to uh, conserve it. We're going to protect it. Now, in all of this, print capitalism also allowed these states to logoize their artifacts and monuments for audience, audiences abroad and for tourists. So you'd see like stamps, you know, as a national emblem, having figures of monuments, pictures of monuments or artifacts on them to communicate that nation. And that puts us here into chapter 11, titled Memory and Forgetting. So during the colonial period, many new states emerged, often being labeled new something, New Zealand, New Netherlands, New York. Well, New Netherlands became New York, but anyway, New Mexico, all, you know, all of these new names. And this was mostly a European thing, but it is evidence of this homogenous empty time that we talked about in the last episode, where like, you could have a situation where there'd be Netherlands and New Netherlands, for example, and they can exist at the, at the same time, whereas the term implies that Netherlands has been replaced by this New Netherlands. But no, we live in a time when, you know, you can have this continuation, but you have this, simul this non-simultaneous kind of progression occurring from one nation to the next in totally different places and occupying very different national borders. So people began to forget regional dialects, uh, hence the title of the chapter. 
And languages and they forgot regional dialects and languages in favor of official languages. Ancestors were even imbued with new colonial languages, even in death. So people who wouldn't have actually spoken the majority language would be assumed to have had spoken that language. And so their tombstones would be written in that language and, and so on. So the colonial period marked a rupture in the history where the old was replaced with an eternal new. The real identities of cultures and ancestors are replaced with secular ones, necessitating an attachment to a narrative of identity, efforts to try to actually make up for these lost traditions by really attaching to the nation in a strong way. You know, you may have lost your culture, your tradition, your heritage, but you are Canadian or you are French and that's enough. And it's a very interesting thing. Uh, I was currently working, just recently working on a project reading history textbooks and without going in, into that too much. One of the things I noticed is the way in which the actual attributes of a national identity aren't ever really specified. Just being that national identity is enough. And people just know what that means. Somehow it's like ephemeral. They just, they, they just kind of know what it means, even though it's not actually specified or taught. And the implications for all of these things are they're huge. It's going to intensify conflict. It's going to intensify alienation among people. It's going to intensify exploitation between nations and so on. And that puts us here into the afterword, which I'm just going to say a few brief things about because mostly it is about the difficulties that arose in translating this text to many different languages, which is interesting. I suggest you go read it. But I'll just point out a few points that I think are interesting. So here he meditates on the polemical origins of the first edition and how he wanted to call out the nationalist trends embedded in liberal movements, in, in Marxist movements, certainly conservative ones as well. What he wanted to do was to de-Europeanize the theoretical study of nationalism, which was at the time wasn't a big field of study. There were very few people actually uh, interrogating what nationalism was, trying to get at the root of it. So at the time of its release, Imagined Communities was really the only text on nationalism that opposed Eurocentrism. And he speculates that that contributed to its popularity. And yeah, that's uh, the afterword, and that's the entire text. I hope that you like what I did. I hope that I made it clear. If there's anything I got wrong or wasn't clear about, you can definitely leave a comment or a view. I like to read all of them, even if I don't have the time to respond to all of them. Um, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. I've heard I'm can be good to help people fall asleep if they need a somewhat soothing voice to help them sleep. Uh, or if they're interested in this stuff, that might be a good reason too. Yeah, on that note, take care.